Amen. Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans, would you? Romans chapter 10 in the scripture. Romans chapter 10. And uh, I want to say that I've been contemplating all day long after that pie uh, night, pie night last night, that uh, much of what I said about junk food is, is probably wrong last night. So um, I just want to get that, clear the air and get that out of there. But oh, man, that was really something. I don't know if I've seen that many pies in one place in a long time, but I sure enjoyed it. It was really, really good. And uh, thank you for all that went and made a, made a great effort to make that happen and make that possible. What a blessing that was. As you're turning there, I want to mention that there's a table out here to your right. There are several books and music CDs and different things that are there. And there'll be more resources as the week progresses. But I want to mention there's prayer cards. I'd sure like it if you'd grab that and pray for us. Uh, we need prayer more than we need anything else. And I know that we've been able to be in evangelism for over a quarter of a century for that reason. Because God's people, like you've been praying. And I, I can't express enough how thankful I am. Some of you have been praying for us for a while. And, and some of you maybe would like to, and so we'd appreciate that. Also, this is our newest gospel track. Uh, we print people's testimonies in track form, and this is the story of, of uh, Jim and Dave Hayswinkle. They're identical twins, and they were uh, wrestlers for five world games and two Olympics in 68 and 72 and uh, in Mexico City and in, uh, in Munich, and uh, they were coaches for 48 years, and just really a neat story of how God brought them to himself, and uh, I think that'll be a blessing for anybody that you may know that uh, uh, is interested in sports, but I want to mention that uh, there is great power in our testimony. I was so glad that Pastor mentioned uh, last night and handed out tracks yesterday, Seven for Heaven, and that really caught my eye. And the reason it did is because uh, this last year and this year, I've been a part of an effort uh, called Fill America, and it's uh, several churches and and evangelists and preachers that are really just trying to motivate each other to give out gospel tracts. And it came to my attention in the early uh, part of last year, and they said, can you build an evangelist team? So I've got several evangelists that I'm uh, working with and encouraging during these particular pushes, and the next push is during December. So uh, anyway, we've been trying to have these gospel pushes, and uh, since it started, uh, several churches have gotten involved in about 1.6 million tracks have gone out all over the country, and that's a good thing, and uh, I'm just glad to be a part of that, and I believe there's great power in giving out gospel tracks, and there's great power in giving your testimony. Uh, no matter where you were when you were saved, no matter how old you were when you came to Christ, uh, no matter what your story is, there's power in your testimony. And I think for three reasons. Number one, because Jesus Christ saved you. Number two, because no one can argue with what happened to you. And number three, no one can argue with a changed life. And do you know the Samaritan woman brought a person, brought a whole town to Jesus, half of whom got saved because she told them all, she told them her testimony. He told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Uh, when the maniac of Gadara got saved, he went and, and he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, no, go home and tell your family and friends what great things God has done for you. And he, I believe, prepared the way so that when Jesus came back passing through that way, they were ready to hear his word. Paul, when he got saved, he gave his testimony on at least three specific occasions and other occasions in the book of Acts before many people and very high-ranking government officials, and God used that. And so there's great power in your testimony. And many years ago, God laid it on my heart to start printing people's testimonies in track form. We have about 20 different tracks. I hope you'll go by the table and stop and see that. On Wednesday night, if the Lord will let me, I'm going to preach a message on Bible prophecy. That seems to be at the forefront of everybody's 
everybody's heart and mind and thinking right now. What's going on in Israel? What's going on in the Middle East? Uh, how does this pertain to the Bible? What does the Bible say about it? Uh, is the rapture uh, going to happen in the middle or the end or the beginning of the tribulation? What does the Bible say about that? And uh, we can answer that from the Bible. We can answer it directly and specifically from the Word of God. And you know, I believe sometimes people will come to hear a message on Bible prophecy where they might not come for just a regular message. So use that as a tool, and I want everyone to really work at getting your friends and family. And uh, uh, I don't think there's pie on Wednesday night, but it, nobody would protest if anybody brought a pie on Wednesday night. So let me just encourage you to get folks here and do everything you can to be a part. Romans chapter 10 is where our Bibles are open. Let's pause and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. Father, thank you for the very good music tonight. Thank you so much for uh, the choir singing. What an encouragement that was. And thank you, Lord, for the sweet singing of the congregation and, and the reminder that day by day we can trust in you. What, an, what a blessing, what a help to me personally that was. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd quiet our hearts and remove from our mind any distractions, anything that would keep us from understanding your word and embracing your will for our life. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that if there's someone here or someone listening that's not saved, please save them in Jesus' name. Help them to understand the gospel and be born again. And we'll thank you and praise you for all that you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious and lovely name. Amen. When you were in high school or in college or maybe even in grad school and you were given a test and you were given questions on that test, what was your preferred type of question? Was it multiple choice, true or false, fill in the blank, or essay? Essay, fill in the blank, true or false, or multiple choice. How many of you would say, my favorite was essay? Can I see your hands if your favorite was essay? Okay, a few of you. A few of I, I, I liked essay. I don't know that it was my favorite, but I liked it because I figured if I didn't know the answer, I would just keep writing. And after a while, the teacher would just throw up his hands and say, just give it to him. He gets an A for effort, you know? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's the way my teachers thought, but that was kind of the way I thought. Uh, how many of you said, no, I didn't like essay. I liked fill in the blank. How many of you liked fill in the blank? Okay, fill in the blank. Good, that's good. We've got three. How many of you say, I liked true or false? True or false? A few more with true or false. There's a 50-50 chance you'll get it and a 50-50 chance you won't. Uh, that's good. That's probably better odds than the rest of them. How many of you say, I like multiple choice? Okay, I'm multiple choice. Multiple choice gets it. Uh, you know, Really, I like multiple choice, too, because you knew the answer was there somewhere. Unless the teacher was just diabolical and fiendish and was just trying to ask trick questions. And, and uh, there were some of those in my growing up years. Uh, we think that they might have been connected to the occult. But anyway, um, so, so I, I want to preach to you tonight on the subject, God's multiple choice for the sinner. God's multiple choice from the, for the sinner. And I want to draw my points primarily from Romans chapter 10 and Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 2. Now, the book of Romans is where I send people that are genuinely seeking to understand the point of the Bible uh, because Romans sums it all up. 
The point of the Bible is in Romans. The whole, the whole from start to finish you have in the book of Romans and God's, God's point of the text, really. Uh, I send them to other places in Scripture, but if they're really seeking to understand what is God trying to say in the whole of Scripture, I'll send them to Romans. Romans 1, 2, and 3 clearly indicts everyone as a guilty sinner. Romans 1, everyone that's not a Jew is a guilty sinner. Romans 2, everyone that's not a Gentile is a guilty sinner. Romans 3, in case we missed anybody, all men are guilty sinners. Right about halfway through Romans chapter 3, he gets to the solution, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. The only solution for man's sin is the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary. His death, burial, and resurrection, therefore being justified by his blood, we have peace with God and we have, we have rest and peace and hope through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to make that case through the end of Romans 3. Romans 4, he makes a hard and fast case that it cannot be our work our good deeds that justify us before God. If it is our good deeds in our good works, it is not Christ's work. If it is Christ's work, it is not our work. Now that doesn't negate the importance of good works. Please don't misunderstand. We as Bible-believing Christians believe in doing good works. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. But we believe there's an order. And we believe that good works are the result of of salvation, that's what Romans 4 teaches, not the cause of salvation. That you cannot earn salvation through your good works. You cannot earn salvation, period. You can only receive it. A gift is not earned, it's received. And that's basically the point of Romans 4. Romans 5 continues with that thought, saying, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It breaks out and explains the first Adam, which brought us into sin, and the second Adam, which brought us out of sin, the second Adam being Jesus Christ. And he comes to the end of Romans 5 and says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And he comes to Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 and teaches us victory truth. Romans 6, how that we have victory in Jesus Christ. Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, and supernaturally were placed in Christ on the cross, in the grave, and up from the grave. Romans chapter 7 talks about Paul's specific struggles with the flesh. Even as a believer, the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. The things he doesn't want to do, he does. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Romans chapter 8 is a sounding note of triumph, because there is therefore now no condemnation which are in, to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 9, 10, and 11 speak about God's dealing with the Jewish people. And he talks about how God has chosen them, and through them the Bible will come, the oracles of God. Through them the Messiah will come, and how God has chosen them as opposed to the Gentiles to be his vehicle, and his, his vehicle through which redemption will come. And Romans chapter 10 and 11 speak about how God has grafted in those that trust Christ as their Savior, and now we as God's people, as the church, are grafted into that brand of Abraham and the seed of Abraham. We're children of Abraham by faith. Romans 12 through 16 deal with practical Christian living truths. So anybody that wants to know the whole point of the Bible, a lot of times I'll send them to Romans. And right here in Romans chapter 10, he describes God's multiple choice for the sinner. Notice please Romans 10 and verse 1. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. 
For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Now, Paul is speaking. He's speaking under inspiration. So these are God's words through his servant Paul. And he says, uh, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, he was, a, he was, an, Israel, he's, it was an Israelite. He was a Jew. In fact, the Bible gives his credentials in Philippians chapter 3. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee concerning zeal. He persecuted the church touching the righteousness which was in the law. He was blameless. That was the apostle Paul before he was saved when he was Saul of Tarsus. And he was indeed, he was indeed blameless according to the law. And he was indeed zealous according to persecuting the church. He was zealous for the Jewish faith. If anybody knew anything about the Jewish religion, Paul did. Saul of Tarsus, before he was saved. He knew something about the Jewish religion. He knew something about this matter of, uh, of, of the Jewish faith. And he was very zealous for it. But then he got saved. He came to the Lord Jesus. He persecuted people that followed the Lord Jesus. And now he meets the Lord Jesus on Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus. And the Lord Jesus said to Saul, 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 why persecutest thou me? And he says, who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And he cried out and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And Saul of Tarsus became a Christian. He was a born-again believer at that moment. Now, when he did trust Christ as his Savior, God blinded him for three days until he he sent his servant Ananias, and something miraculous happened in Paul's heart as he prepared him to become an apostle and a preacher, and he was mightily used of God. He was with the Lord Jesus for three and a half years after his initial preaching in Damascus and down into Jerusalem, and God began to work in a mighty way through his servant. But now he comes and he writes, and he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I want to ask, shouldn't that be our heart's desire and prayer to God for our people? Oh God, please save my family. Please save everyone in my family. I would venture a guess if my, my thoughts are correct and, and my, the law of averages is so that there are people here tonight who have people in your family and people that are related to you who are not saved. You ought to pray, oh Lord, please save my family. Let the circle not be broken before I get to heaven. Oh Lord, please save my mom and my dad and my uncles and my aunts and my children and my grandchildren. Please save my family. That ought to be our prayer. It ought to be our prayer, Lord, please save my neighborhood. Anybody that knows anything about the lake of fire and about hell would have, should have a desire to keep every single person out of this awful place called the lake of fire. Uh, uh, Penn Gillette, you may know him, you may not. He's a, a magician, he's an atheist. And uh, one day after one of his acts and one of his shows, he came out back and there was a man standing there to meet him. And the man said, I, I want you to know that I really appreciate the hard work that you put into your show. I always enjoy watching it. And Penn Gillette said, well, thank you. He said, now I want to give something to you that, that I, I've been saving for you for a while. And Penn Gillette tells this on a, on a video on YouTube, and he holds up a little Gideon New Testament. He said, the man gave me this New Testament. And the man said, in it, you'll find what changed my life and what transformed my life, and I know it will change your life as well. And again, I want to thank you. You know what Penn Gillette, the atheist magician, said? He said, I want to go on record and say that even though I'm not a Christian, and even though I'm an atheist and I have no plans of becoming a Christian, he said, I deeply respect what that man did. He said, that man was trying to convert me. He was trying to proselytize me. He said, and I deeply respect that. He said, if you truly believe in a place called hell, 
where all who go there, all who reject uh, the Bible and reject the God of the Bible go, and you don't try to proselytize me, what kind of hatred is that? Now, this is not a Baptist preacher. This is an atheist magician who has enough sense to recognize if there is a hell, and the Bible teaches clearly there is, and there is, then those who believe in the God who can rescue them from hell ought to try to get everyone and anyone out of hell. So he's saying, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Would to God we would have some people here tonight who would say, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my family, for my neighborhood, for all those that I work with, for my whole uh, community, for my county, for my city, for my nation, is that they would be saved. I wonder what would happen if every Christian would have the eye on eternity like Paul did in Romans chapter 10. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, he said, I wish that I could be accursed for my brethren Israel's sake. In other words, he said, if it were possible, I wish I could go to hell so that they could go to heaven. And I want to ask, where is that kind of burning passion for lost souls and for eternal, the eternal souls of men today? Pastor and I were talking today about the 70s, and, and I grew up in a very evangelistic church in the 70s and even into the 80s, and, and uh, people were saved on a regular basis, and it just seemed like that was, the, that was the push of the day. And oh, it needs a revival. Oh, how we need a passion for souls. Oh, how we need to turn our eyes away from our busy schedules and all of our problems and all all of our difficulties and lift our eyes and look on the fields for they're white already unto harvest. Oh, that we would have some Christians this week and beginning tonight that would say, I'm not going to be satisfied with the few precious souls that I've won. I want to see more people come to Christ and I want to see them come to Christ and I want to see them be saved and I want to see them get baptized and I want to see them get involved in church and I want to see them reproducing souls. Oh, that we would have a heart for souls like Paul did in Romans chapter 10 in Proverbs 24 10. It says, if thou faint in the day of adversity. Thy strength is small. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if that slain if thou knewest, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall he not render to every man according to their works? The Bible still says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. It still says in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I want to tell you that this Christian school does not exist so that people can just have their head filled with knowledge. This Christian school exists so that young people can have their heart have stamped with eternity and they can lift their eyes and look on the fields for their white already unto harvest. This church does not exist just so that it can be a monument to men's ingenuity and men's giving and men's ability. It exists so that it can point men to the Lord Jesus Christ and that ought to be our passion. In Acts chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Then he continues and he says in verse number 3, verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now, he gives us in verses 2 and 3 the first option on this multiple choice question. Multiple choice for the sinner gives us the first option. Let me just say, the question is, how can I solve my sin problem. 
That's the question. How can I solve my sin problem? Now, that assumes God. That assumes the existence of God. That assumes that there is a sin problem, and there is, and it assumes, assumes a lot of things right out of the chute, and it does. You know, they tell me that Oprah Winfrey came up with a religion of her own a few years ago, and she came up with this religion, and in it, there's no such thing as sin. And you know what that proves to me? She never had kids. Because I guarantee you, anybody that's ever had kids knows there's such a thing as a sin problem. I have five kids. My oldest is 21. My youngest is six and a half. You know I've never had to teach my kids how to sin. They come by it naturally. They get it from their mother. No, 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 no. They, they, don't, they, don't. they get it from the bloodline of their father. And they come right through me. And they sin naturally. You don't have to teach a kid to do what is wrong naturally. You have to teach a kid to do what is right because wrong comes naturally. And so I'm asking the question, how can I have my sin problem solved? You better ask yourself that question tonight. You say, why? Well, when I say solved, I mean, how can I find forgiveness? How can I find power over my sin? And how can I find escape from sin's penalty? Hell. How can I get my sin problem solved? Well, option number one on this multiple choice for the sinner is this. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Let me repeat that. Follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. You said, preacher, what do you mean? Notice our text in verse 3. He says, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. Now, whenever you're reading a passage, you should read with your Bible or your pen in hand and highlight those words that are mentioned again and again and again because God's trying to convey a truth. And six times in this passage, in just a few short verses, he mentions the word righteousness. And then another time in verse number 10. Now, watch here. The option number one is follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. That's option number one in dealing with my sin. If you want, you can do that. That's what he's saying the dear Jewish people are doing. Again, he's an expert on the Jewish religion. He knows exactly what they were talking about. He's very familiar with it. And yet he says they were zealous, but it was not according to knowledge. Let me say, zeal does not equal accuracy. I can be zealous about a thing and be dead wrong. Neither does sincerity. I can be as sincere as I want to be about a thing and be sincerely wrong. So he says they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They don't know what God is expecting to solve my sin problem. And they go about to establish their own righteousness. Watch it now. And they will not submit themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now here in this context, he's speaking of the dear Jewish people. But the truth of the matter is you can fill in the blank with any religion that does not have the Bible as the only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior. You can fill in the blank. Now, I'm not trying to be disparaging tonight. Please do not misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I am trying to be as direct as I can on this matter. You can fill in the blank with any religion that does not have the Bible as its only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior. What have they done? They've begun to follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Now, will that make them look good? It may. Will it make them acceptable in society? It could. 
Will it get them up out of the grave and get them to escape hell come judgment day? Absolutely not. You see, in this passage of Scripture, he says they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're not familiar with God's righteousness. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He says, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures, neither the power of God. And they had make, replaced man, uh, they had replaced the Bible with man-made tradition. He said, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. They, they were good at enforcing their rules. They were good at making more rules. They were good at making lives miserable because of all their rules. But their r- rules were man-made rules that were completely independent and ignorant of God's rules. And so, so here they were trying to earn their way to heaven. Again, you can fill in the blank. These, these rules in any given society, in any given culture, in any given location may make you a good person, may make you a decent member of society, at least on the outside. It may make you accepted by those around you, but it won't get you to get into heaven come judgment day. And that's all that matters. And so I want you to see that this is pure ignorance and it's completely ridiculous. Let, let me illustrate this. How, how can I best illustrate this? Let's say I want to say, you know what? I want to play baseball. So I'm going to play baseball for my favorite team, the Minnesota Twins. So I'm going to go out, and I'm 49, but you know, I still feel like I got it. So I'm going to start doing push-ups, and I'm going to start doing sit-ups, and I'm going to start running, and I'm going to the batting cages, and I'm going to get ready. And then I go, and I apply for the game, or however you get in, and I get into the farm teams, and I pass up the where Tim Tebow was, and I get even further along, and I get into the minor leagues, and I'm so excited about playing ball, and I get up to my first up to bat, and at my first up to bat, I step up to the plate, and I hit my cleats with my bat, because that's what you do, and I spit in the dirt, and I get ready, and I lean back on my right knee, and I put my right elbow up, and I stare the pitcher down, and here comes the pitch, and the first pitch, I always let go, because that's what you're supposed to do. And then I wait for the second pitch, and I get in my stance, and here comes the second pitch. It's a fastball right down the pike, and instead of me stepping in and swinging, you know what I do? I reach out, and I grab it with my right hand, catch it right out of the air. And I look at the catcher, and I wink. And I look at the umpire, and I nod. And then instead of me throwing it back to the pitcher, I turn around and throw it behind home plate. And then instead of me waiting for them to get another ball, instead of running to first base, I run right to second base, run across the pitcher's mound, slide head first into second base, get up and dust myself off, and I look at the second baseman, and I wink, and I look at the umpire, and I nod, and I smile. Now, what are they going to do with me? You say, they're going to kick you out of the game, and they should. And the coach comes and says, get him out of here. Get him in the dugout. In fact, get him in the clubhouse. I don't want to see him. What are you doing? And I walk all proud as a peacock down into the dugout. And I say, hey, coach, did you see that? I caught a 95-mile-an-hour fastball with my bare hands. I bet you've never seen that before. He says, get him out of my sight. And all the while down to the clubhouse, I'm bragging. Wow, that was something. I mean, that's the first. I bet Minnesota Twins had never seen anything like that happen before. And wow, it's great. And by the time I get down to the clubhouse, everybody's wondering, what is wrong with me? And they start to chide me. They say, what is wrong with you? That is not the way you play baseball. Are you crazy? And I bow out my chest, and I stick out my, uh, my, my furrowed brow, and I say, it is where I come from. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to know I'm crazy. Now, watch here. 
I obviously am following some set of rules, but not the rules. Now, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I want to say this as emphatically and clearly as I can. There is not one bit of difference between that and man-made religion and tradition. It gets you nowhere. It's completely ridiculous. And it may be linked into your family several generations back, but it hasn't solved your sin problem up to this point. It hasn't provided for you forgiveness. It hasn't given you power over sin. It hasn't given you escape from sin's penalty because it cannot. It has no power or wherewithal to do so. So I want to give you option number one, follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Notice verse number four. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, verse five. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Option number two. Option number two is follow God's law perfectly from birth till death. You say, that's an option? Well, that's what verse 5 seems to indicate. It says, Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. Watch it now. You have righteousness which is ignorant in verse 3. You have righteousness which is by faith, verse number 4. Now you have righteousness which is of the law. He says that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. You say, preacher, are you saying that if I keep the law perfectly, I can go to heaven? Yes. You say, where'd you come from? Preacher, where'd we get him? He's a heretic. That's not what the Bible teaches. All right, turn to Romans 2. Turn back to your left to Romans chapter 2. Notice what the Bible says. Now remember, Romans 1 is to the Gentile, and it is designed to indict every person that is not a Jew as a guilty sinner. Romans 2 is to the Jew, and it's designed to indict everyone that's not a Gentile as a guilty sinner. And notice what he says in verse number four. Verse number uh, five, after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. There you have it. There you have it. And that really signs and seals the death knell of those that think that they're going to get to heaven by their deeds. God says, all right, you want that to be the standard? Let's make it the standard. Did you know that in Revelation chapter 20, he says he's going to judge every man according to their works, according to the things which are written in the books? There's three books on the great white throne judgment day. There's the Bible. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, we're sure that it, the judgment of God is according to truth. Then there's not only the Bible, but number two, there's the book written by your life, your words, your attitudes, your actions, your thoughts. Everything written down. Then there is the book called the book of life. And he says he'll judge every man according to his deeds. And you know what that is going to prove? That your deeds weren't good enough to get you to heaven. That you didn't keep the law. Notice verse number 6. Verse 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. There you have it. You want glory, honor, immortality? There you have it. You can have eternal life. If you, by patient continuance and well-doing, seek for it, look at verse number 10. We'll come back to verse number 8 and 9. Verse 10 says, glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there's no respect of persons with God. To the Jew, he says, you want to work your way to heaven? All right, do it, but you've got to do it, and you've got to complete the law perfectly. 
Now, Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and fulfill it in every minute detail he did. And then he went to the cross and died for all of us who'd broken the law. So anybody, anytime, that keeps the law perfectly from birth till death without ever breaking it once can get to heaven. But who has done that? Only one, and his name is Jesus. Everyone else has broken the law. Not once, but over and over and over again. How are you doing on the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image and bow down and worship it. Commandment number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you, how are you doing on the first three? Uh, nothing should ever come between you and God. Nothing. In your devotion, in your time, in your love, in your admiration. admiration. Nothing should ever receive worship other than God. How are you doing on that? You should never take God's name in vain, using it in a vain or an empty manner. Commandment number four, the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In the Old Testament, it was Saturday. In the New Testament, it's the first day of the week that we come and honor the Lord. How are you doing on that one? Commandment number five, honor thy father and mother. Have you always honored your parents? You know, our responsibility is to obey our parents while we're in the home, but to honor our parents the rest of our life and, and, and to honor our parents the rest of their life. How are you doing on that fifth commandment? Commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. You say, oh, whew, finally you get to one I'm not guilty of. Well, Jesus said, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm guiltless there. But Jesus said, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Commandment nine, thou shalt not bear false witness. Commandment ten, thou shalt not covet. How are you doing on the Ten Commandments? You say, well, I've broken one. Well, then the second option is not for you. Well, you say, I've only broken one. One time, whosoever shall offend in one point, he's guilty of all. That's what the Bible says. That means God has given the law to prove your guilt, not your innocence. God's word was given and God's law was given to show us that this is God's expectation and this is how far short we have fallen of meeting that expectation. And he says here in this passage that if you want glory, you want eternal life, then you must, by patient continuance and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He says in verse 10, you, you can have glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good. We say, that's, that's not possible. Right. But did you know that there's not just 10 commandments? There's 613. You say, 600? I, I didn't know there were that many. Mm -hmm. And if you've broken one, you're out. Option number one is to keep a, a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Option number two is to keep God's law perfectly without ever breaking it. It seems to me like option number one is completely ridiculous. And it sure seems to me at first glance like option number two is completely impossible. You say, well, what's option number three? Well, look at our text, Romans chapter two and verse number eight. After he says to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, he says unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. Option number three is to die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your own sin. You say, I don't like that one. Well, I don't either. But that's your option.
If you're going to break the law, you have indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish awaiting you. That's not what I say. That's what God says. I didn't write it. God wrote it. And by the way, he did not prepare hell for you and me, and with you and me in mind, he prepared hell for the devil and his angels. But he is holy, so holy that he cannot look on sin, so holy that when Jesus Christ, his only son, died on the cross, the Bible says, thou art of pure eyes and cannot behold iniquity, and God turned his back on his only son, and Jesus Christ cried, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's so holy, the Bible says, that when his law was given, he put a fence around the bottom of the mountain and said to the Israelites, anybody that comes near and touches it and touches the mountain will die. So holy that when Job saw him in Job 42, he cried, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ears, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So holy that when Isaiah saw the Lord, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He was so holy that when John the Revelator saw him, the risen Christ, in in all of his glory, with hair as white as as wool, his eyes as a flame of fire, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. John the Revelator fell down at his feet as a dead man. He's so holy that he will not allow sin in his presence. And how, I want to ask, how are you going to get into heaven with your sin problem not solved? His way. He's so holy, he will not allow sin into his presence. He cannot. He would be no longer God if he did, and heaven would no longer be heaven if he did. So ladies and gentlemen, here in this passage you've got two options and the others that we've looked at are already in Romans chapter 10. You can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. You can keep God's rules perfectly from birth till death. The one is completely ridiculous. The second is completely impossible. The third option, die, go to hell, burn forever, and pay for your sin is not pleasant to anyone, but that's a fact. In the book of Psalms it says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Jesus said that the rich man lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Revelation 20 and verse number 15 says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 22 and verse 18, it says, For the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death the Bible speaks of the judgment of God in hell and it says that they'll be gathered those that have rejected Jesus as their savior they'll be gathered in bundles like the tares and they will be burned that's not what I say that's what the Bible says so if you're going to pay for your own sin there's only one way to pay for it and that's die go to hell Burn forever and pay for your own sin. Listen to me, how, how absolutely shocking it will be for those in the first category who by tradition and by religion and by family ritual have been taught that the way to get to heaven is to do all these rules, make some holy pilgrimage, follow all of these commands, and to genuinely try all their life only to wake up and find that's not the way to pay for sin. 
there's only one way to pay for your sin, and that's to die, go to hell, and perish forever. You say, I don't like that. Well, turn to Romans chapter 10. There's one final option on this multiple choice question. Please notice Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, notice what he says in verse 4. It says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. You know why I know this book is written by God and not man? Because of that verse right there. If this book had been written by God and not man, it would have said Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that worketh. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that trieth. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that titheth, to everyone that joineth. But it says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In other words, there's a righteousness that's done in ignorance. There's a righteousness that is done or that is of Moses that is by keeping the law and it's not going to get you into heaven. There's a righteousness that will get you into heaven and that is through faith in Christ. Look at verse 6. It says the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise. Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down from above or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, he's emphasizing a new way to acquire righteousness. And do you know what that new way is? Faith. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Verse 6, the righteousness which is of faith. Verse number 8, he says, the, he says that word is nigh thee even in thy mouth that is, and in thy heart that is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, this is option number 4. By faith, receive God's gift of eternal life and believe Jesus died and rose again. And the moment you do, instantly, he gives you eternal life. He did it for me when I was just a boy living in northwestern Indiana. In the spring of 1978, I got down on my knees and I asked Jesus Christ to save me. And save me he did. And save me and set me free he did. He solved my sin problem on that day in the spring of 1978. It doesn't mean I've not struggled. It doesn't mean that I've not been perfect. But I've been made righteous in Jesus Christ. And my sin problem has been solved. That is, I've found forgiveness. I've found victory over my sin, and I've found escape from the future consequence of sin, which is eternity in hell. And that's what the Bible teaches. Notice what he says in verse number 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that means you call upon his name, no other name. Not the name of Allah, or Buddha, or the Pope, or any preacher, or the Baptist church, or the Methodist church, or anyone. You call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Someone says, preacher, do I believe in Jesus or do I believe that he died and rose again? Yes. It's impossible to separate the two. You're in calling upon the name of Jesus, you're trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection. In trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection, you're trusting only in him. He says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. There's the emphasis again. You want righteousness? That is, you want your sin problem solved? All right, then you can follow a set of man-made rules independent of God's rules. Independent of God's rules. Completely ridiculous. 
You can keep the law perfectly from birth till death without ever breaking it once. Completely impossible. Or you can die, go to hell, pay for your own sin, and burn forever. Completely unnecessary. Or you can do what the Bible says here and believe on Jesus Christ. That is, depend upon Him and Him alone to save you. Now, has there been a moment in time when that's, done, when that's happened in your life? I'm not asking if you joined a church or if you were confirmed or catechized or sprinkled. I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking, has there been a moment in time when you, before God, have admitted your guilt and said, God, I'm a guilty sinner and I need a Savior and I want you to save me? Or in those basic words, you've cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, I am a sinner, I am lost, I'm headed to hell, and I need a Savior and I want you to be my Savior. I'm believing on you and your death, burial, and resurrection right now. Has that happened? I'm not asking if you kind of grew into it over a long process of time. That's not how salvation works. You have one birth date physically, and you have a birth date spiritually. I'm not asking if you can remember the exact date or time or barometric pressure, but I do want to know, is there a point in time when you accepted God's gift of eternal life? If not, God Almighty brought you to this place tonight so that you could be saved. Notice what he says in verse number 10. He says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I tell people that want to be saved, you've got to have three things. Number one, you have to have a heart. That is, a heart and mind. That, that, that's the center of your, your decision-making apparatus. You've got to have a heart. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Then number two, you have to have a mouth. You say, preacher, I've got one of those. Number three, you have to, with your heart, believe Jesus died and rose again, and with your mouth, call upon the name of Jesus. Now, the third thing you need to do is be a sinner. If you're a sinner who has a heart, a mind, that can think and reason, and you've got a mouth, you know enough to be saved, and you can be saved tonight. You don't have to leave and wonder for the next couple of days on this. You can be saved tonight, and you should be saved tonight. There's no reason to put it off. Now notice in verse 6, 7, and 8, he says, don't fool with foolish questions. He says, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, or who shall go down into hell? He says, don't bother with these foolish questions. He says, verse 8, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, you need to come to Jesus, set every question you have aside about God and the Bible, and say, the most important question is, has my sin problem been solved? And have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Some years ago, I was preaching out in San Leandro, California, and I'd been there several times before, and I was preaching and, and stayed in the Santa Maria Inn, or Santa Marina Inn right there. And, and so right, right there, I, I went to get uh, some continental breakfast. Now, two of the most disappointing words in the English language are continental breakfast. But not at this hotel. There's actually some good food. And I went and got some good food. And I, and I came, I finished, I came back to my room. And as I approached my room, I noticed the door was ajar just a bit. And, and I said, What's, that's strange. I didn't leave my door ajar. The, the deadbolt was there and the door was up against it. I looked around, there was no cleaning cart, and I said, this, this is odd. And I, and I came, and I opened the do door a little bit, and I said, there's something strange here. And I looked, and I noticed on the credenza there was a little plate of food. And I said, I didn't leave a plate of food here. What's going on? And then I stepped a little further into the room, and there was a man sitting on the bed. 
And then I realized it. I'm in the wrong room. I'm in the wrong room. I backed out. I said, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Now, in fairness, everything looked the same, but it was 212. I was in 312. And so I said, oh, I said, please forgive me. So I got out of there real quick, and I darted down the hall, just embarrassed. And I said, oh, that's really awkward. And I went up the stairs, and I got up the stairs, and he followed me all the way up. I said, oh, no, he's going to pick a fight with me. Now, I think I could have taken him. But, but anyway, uh, he, I said, this is not good. And, and he wasn't wanting to pick a fight. He was just kind of laughing about the whole situation. He wanted to talk. He was up from Bakersfield, California, and he, he started to just, just talk. He, he could tell he, he just had some burdens and he, he needed to share some. And so he told me about how he, his youngest daughter, his oldest daughter was married. His youngest daughter just got asked by some lughead to marry her, and, 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 and he said yes, and now he's going to be a lonely dad and wondering how he's going to make it through life. And, and he told me the story. He said how he'd fallen in love with a beautiful young lady, and he got her to come to his church. And I'd asked him early on if he knew the Lord, and, and he, he said, gave some vague answer. But he said, in her 30s, she contracted cancer, and she fell sick and left him to raise those two little girls. You could tell he was still, still reeling from all of that. And then he said, he, he said, not long after that, I married a lady, and she had a little boy, and about five years after my second marriage, she divorced me, and she left me. And he looked at me with his eyes dejected, and he said, after that, he said, I, I just gave up on God. I gave up on church. I just couldn't understand why I would be as good a man as I'd been, and, and God would allow this to happen. And he said to me, he said, Dwight, why did that happen? I said, Tony, let's, let's go sit over here. And we went over in a little corner of the hotel and we sat down. And I said, to put it very plainly, I don't know. I said, I don't know. And I said, if anybody comes along and tells you, well, this is why that tragedy happened, they probably for sure don't know. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, why did my sister who was 44 die of cancer. She had 11 children. Nine were still at home. I said, why did that happen? I said, why did my cousin who was 48 and her husband who was 53 and two of their three children die in a single car wreck and they left Brittany, their oldest child, to discover that she no longer has a family? Why did that happen? I said, I don't know. I said, I can understand the grief that you feel and, and understand it because I've lost loved ones of my own. And I said, anybody that comes along and gives you an answer just off the cuff or with a casual way probably for sure doesn't know. I said, but what answer could there be that would take away all the pain of all these years? That would make you throw up your hands and say, oh, that's why that happened and everything would be solved. I said, there probably isn't one. I said, but Tony, if you find every answer to all your questions and you don't answer this question, have I come to Jesus and accepted his payment for my sin? Someday you will be of all men most miserable. I said, Tony, have you accepted Jesus Christ's payment for your sin? He dropped his head. And he shook it. 
I said, Tony, then the most important question you can solve in your heart right now is how can I get my sin problem solved? What must I do to be saved? And the only answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Tony bowed his head right there in that corner of that hotel and asked Jesus Christ to save him. And do you know what God did? He saved him. Just like he'll save anyone here tonight who has never had their sin problem solved and who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm a guilty sinner. I need a Savior, and I want you to be my Savior. I'm calling upon you right now. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I thank you for your kind attention to the Bible. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed if you could say, Preacher, honestly, without a doubt, I know for a fact that I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm certain that I'm saved. But as you were preaching tonight, God has laid specific individuals in my family, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, on my heart. Would you pray for me that over the next several weeks, the next nine weeks or so of 2023, God would use me to reach out to these family, friends, and co-workers and seek, seek to win them to Christ. If that's you, so preacher, I'm saved, but God's laid specific individuals on my heart that need Christ. Would you pray for me that I would reach them? My burden is that they would be saved. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? Slip it up high. Several. Thank God for this. Several. Question number two, how many of you with heads bowed and eyes closed can say, Brother Smith, there are certain things that I have yet to learn, and there's so many things that I don't know, but there's one thing I'm absolutely sure of. If I died today, I know that I'd go to heaven. If I died five months from now, I know that I'd be in heaven. I would not be in hell because there's been a time when I, by faith, called upon Christ and asked him to save me. Now, if you don't know that, it won't help you or me to raise your hand. But if you're sure of that, there's been a time when you've been born again, when you've received God's gift of eternal life. As a testimony to the Lord, would you just lift your hand up high? Yes, I know that. If I die tonight, I know that I'd go to heaven. God bless you, and put your hands down. Now, I couldn't see everyone, but I wonder if there's someone here tonight that would say, Brother Dwight, I don't know that. I honestly could not raise my hand. I am not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. But I need to be, and I really would like to be tonight. Would you pray for me? Yes, I will. I'll not embarrass you. I only want to pray for you and, and ask the Lord to help you come to Jesus. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone here like that? Man or woman, young or old? Thank you, young man. Anybody else? Say, preacher, please pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved, but I need to know, and I truly want to know. Anyone else along with this one, slip up your hand and put it right back down. Preacher, please pray for me. Pray for me. All right, now if you just raised your hand, said, Preacher, I don't know that I'm saved, but I want to know. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you said that, would you just lift your eyes and look at me for just a moment? I'll wait until I see your eyes. Did you mean that? In a moment, we're going to stand, and I'm going to pray for you as I promised, but my prayers alone can't get you to heaven. You have to make a personal choice to come to Jesus. And Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's never been an individual anywhere that's come to Jesus and been turned away. And he wants to save you tonight. And when we stand, I'm going to pray for you. Then I'm going to point to the piano player, and she's going to play softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling. I want you on the first note of that first verse to come and take Pastor by the hand and say, Pastor, I just need to get it settled tonight. I need to be saved don't delay. I urge you to come to Jesus. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the simplicity of it all. 
And I pray in Jesus' name that you will help this one that needs to be saved. There may be others, Lord, tonight that simply need to call upon Christ. They need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Help them to do so. Help them to come and get it settled tonight. And then several of my brothers and sisters raise their hand with burdened hearts for friends and family and co-workers. Lord, help them to come and lay those names at this altar. And Lord, send a great revival and an awakening in this body and in this area as a result of this decision. In Jesus' name.